It's offering people this idea that they can completely eliminate risks for their children, for themselves, giving them that control, the illusion of control. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Stephen Templeton, professor of immunology at Indiana School of Medicine and author of the new book, Fear of a Microbial Planet, How a Germophobic Safety Culture Makes Us Less Safe. Could our fear and excessive avoidance of germs and microbes actually be backfiring? And how will the rise of what Templeton calls a safety culture impact future generations? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Steve Templeton, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Great to be back. I think it must be about a year and a half or so since we sat down for the first time. I remember it very well. Um, you know, you're this uh, quiet voice of reason amidst pandemic madness. Um, so, and you've now written a book, and I've taken a long time to read it. And it, I think it's one of the books that I've been waiting to read, actually. But why don't we start with the microbes? <laughs> We've kind of come to believe that microbes are somehow bad and should be eliminated. And I, but you argue in this book that, that this, meant, this type of mentality is actually part of the problem of what got us here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it wasn't that we've started thinking a certain way, because I think a lot of the thoughts about our relationship with microbes had been shifting um, in the decades you know, leading up to the last three years about uh, microbial exposure being something that is uh, on, on balance beneficial. Um, and you can, you can see this in, in, in the, the opposite of that in old um, news stories, some of which I found um, doing research for the book, um, you know, about antibiotic. There was an era of what I call the only good bacteria is a dead bacteria. And, you know, the advent of antibiotics was hailed as just something that was going to cure every single um, infectious disease. And um, antibiotics would be something we'd be encountering in daily life and things like toothpaste and candy and things like that that would make our lives um, better and sort of sterile and bacteria-free. And obviously we know that that's not something that is um, um, desirable and uh, would definitely have serious trade-offs is, you know, uh, treatment of livestock and other things where antibiotics have been used heavily. Uh, it's definitely downsides to those types of large environmental, large-scale uses of, of antibiotics. I mean, nobody would argue that that doesn't have a trade-off now. Um, but then the idea that other things might have trade-offs, like infection with respiratory viruses um, is something that, um, you know, that idea was starting to get into the scientific discussion a few years ago, but then took a, a direct pause sometime in 2020. Um, and part of my goal was to kind of revive that as, uh, as not necessarily for healthy people being exposed to viruses, being exposed to respiratory viruses, colds, flu, that type of thing, um, isn't is just part of normal life and actually strengthens people and, and allows them to deal with similar infections that have uh, with viruses and other pathogens that have similar structures. So um, part of the, the the book was sort of kind of re revive that idea and, and bring it into the context of the, the pandemic that we just had. 
Yeah, and you're not you're not saying that you know you want to take the most lethal pathogens and consume them necessarily to 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 see if you make it. Basically, it's just it's it's a way we think about our relationship with all these small things, which sometimes in big concentrations can cause us cause us harm. I think I think you actually say there's more bacterial cells or micro cells in the body than human cells or. Is that is that do I have that right? I mean, right, in order of magnitude, well, that's ten that, times different. Ten times. Well, so so that that's fascinating. I certainly didn't know that. What, what are these cells, and why is there so many of them, and and are they really a part of us? Yeah, and that's that's something that was was gaining a lot of um, traction in sort of the scientific world, and even in you know newspaper articles, and science articles, science communication articles. Um, in the last 10, 15 years, um, and uh, um, I think putting it in the context of something like the the COVID pandemic, I think was was I th something that was going to be unique and and uh, others hadn't necessarily thought of up to this point. So one of the things I was fascinated to learn as I was reading was um, how important a role these various uh, microbes, for lack of a better term. Um, play in our development and in our lives and you know all the way from birth you know and in fact you know helping us gain immunity to to help us w in gaining some sort of protection even from other diseases and there's it's this co very complex interplay and you, you chart a lot of the different sort of pathways of that right and it's not you know these are um, emerging areas, you know. I mean, you always hear some hot new study that shows that you might be able to treat autism with um, some sort of probiotic treatment, and these are things that haven't necessarily panned out. Um, but there's a lot of promise there with um, various um, first world diseases that there are some components of um, microbial exposure or lack of that might someday be able to be uh, mimicked or um, you know, induced in sort of a therapeutic way to lower things like allergies, um, you know, autoimmune type diseases, um, you know, intolerance, um, things like that, like you know, gluten sensitivity, stuff like that could be related to. And there's a lot of evidence that's related to some sort of microbial, what we call dysbiosis, that means the microbes in our body are not um, in sort of a the the sort of form that they should be, in composition that they should be, and um, how to sort of relieve that is is another matter. Once you start getting into therapeutics, because um, there's been a lot of research in this area that's had promise but hasn't really panned out. Um, but I think it's really fascinating to think about um, how. Although we can't expo avoid exposure to microbes, we are better than, at it than we ever have been. And there has been a, a, a trade-off to that, which I talk about quite a bit in the book. Right, well, and, and some of the trade-off is that some diseases which weren't a big issue are suddenly a big issue. Absolutely, you know, you can show the maps pretty clearly with autoimmune diseases, asthma, that type of thing is completely inverse in um, first world or developed countries versus developing countries. Um, and, 
you know, if somebody moves between uh, before the age of 10 from a developing country to a developed country, they then take on that susceptibility to those first world diseases. Um, the converse is also true. If somebody moves before the age of 10 to a developing country, they get that lower um, susceptibility. So um, it's definitely something that occurs in, or earlier in life. Um, and uh, um, that's the, the, the critical time point. And most of us have kind of missed that. So we're stuck with whatever whatever you know, environment that we grew up with. You know, one thing that just I'm reminded of, when well, there's been an observation that's been kind of brandished about recently, I believe the numbers are accurate, but there's just a lot lower incidence in these first world, any of these first world diseases among the Amish, for example. Mm -hmm. So have you, have you thought about that? Yeah, so I, I talk about a study. It was very interesting in, um, um, and I forget what journal it was in, comparing Amish with a, a similar religious community called Hutterites, Hutterites which are not right, as, right. Not as um, averse to modern conveniences, right? So you have two, um, I guess, semi-isolated communities, but they have completely different views on m modernity and how to, how to utilize things um, of, of modern life. And, uh, you know, they had... Um, their microflora, the, the microbiota in their guts were very different. Their um, predisposition to inflammation was much lower in, in Amish communities, um, and their exposure to microbes in their home environment, you know, was much higher, obviously, because um, they're growing up on farms, they're exposed to cattle, they have large families. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I've seen that um, talking to people in, in, in Indiana. You know, I mean, we had a, a, a woman, and I talk about this in the book, who delivered our second child um, at a home birth, which is very rare in places like Indiana because it was illegal for a very long time. But she had delivered for Amish women, um, and she talked about, you know, the kind of environment that she would deliver a baby in, and it would... Uh, you know, make a lot of obstetricians cringe, you know, having people in the house that clearly had like, you know, whooping cough and, you know, things like that. And um, it's, it, it's fascinating to think, you know, th these folks are, are not unhealthy. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're living at this level, but they still um, have some, some advantages to it. And, uh, not that everyone should go back and live like Amish people. I'm not certainly in favor of that. But I think there's some, some interesting things that need to be researched and, and uh, considered in future possibilities for therapies for first world diseases. What's really interesting is there's all these different variables which end up confounding each other, right? Of course, they're exposed to different kinds of these microflora and microfauna, and then, you know, they're not vaccinated. There's, there's, there's many, many different factors they play, and so it would be interesting to tease apart what, 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 what are the sort of the most significant. If you can get the cooperation of the people for these studies, it's, it's fascinating, and I think uh, a gold mine for, for immunologists or um, uh, 
microbiome microbiologist as well. So how does this juxtapose with what happened with COVID? You tell me. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, I got the idea for writing a book about the time that the, the pandemic really took off in April of 2020, and it took about three years to get to the point where the book would then be released. But, um, you know, just the way that people reacted, um, you know, the things that people thought were um, going to be very effective or um, at least did for a, um, a theatrical reason or the appearance of safety, which I like to use in my book, things like shutting down, you know, skate parks, putting sand in skate parks, uh, shutting down hiking trails, um, you know, outdoor activities, people wearing masks while they're biking, um, you know, there's really no evidence ever for that being um, uh, effective. Or, or no logic, even. Right. And so, um, in addition to sort of writing a book about how that fit into our perception of our microbial world, um, you know, I wanted to, to explain it to myself how people were, were reacting um, because it was so shocking how wrong I was about um, how things were going to play out and how people um, in my own community and in other communities uh, across the, the United States and other Western nations, frankly, would react to it. So some of it was, you know, my own attempt at explaining it uh, to myself, um, despite being, you know, very wrong about how things would be handled. Well, so, so what was your reaction? Yeah, well, I mean, I was floored by things like shutting down. I mean, I, I, I never thought that, um, you know, entire sports would be completely shut down and schools would be shut down, businesses, um, just all this activity where um, you could see where leaders were thinking in what I call shutdown fever. We just want to shut down something else. You know, what else can we shut down? And it became a competition. Um, and uh, that was really, really surprising to me. And because once you start doing that, there has to be a discussion of when you stop doing that. And that didn't really happen. So um, I started to be really curious about why and um, what was being said about this sort of thing in public health circles, especially before. Um, you know, thinking anything differently became controversial. And uh, that's kind of how I got started into it, with not only with this idea that um, the way people are acting is not rational in the way of keeping themselves safer or avoiding an infectious disease, um, but also on the sort of population level of, um, you know, not being able to um, understand how the public health aspect of it could deviate from something that was seemingly common sense up to that point. What was common sense to you? There was not a, one person that knew everything about um, this topic because you have, you know, immunologists like myself that understand natural immunity, natural immunity supposedly, immunity to vaccines, and. Um, um, but then you have, obviously, epidemi epidemiologists, other public health people. They don't quite know absolutely every aspect of, of, of this and be able to explain it. Um, <clears throat> but I felt like, um, you know, 
it, it, it would, it, you didn't have to know everything about it because everyone was being affected by it. I wasn't just a scientist. I wasn't just an immunologist. I was a, a father of children in public schools. So I think anybody would have certain sort of opinions and were allowed to have those opinions. And so I just put it into the context of um, you know, what I thought about how children were treated in other subjects and other areas. And um, what I came into was the idea that there was a, a safety culture, and I talked about this in our first interview more than 18 months ago. Um, that ended up being uh, one way which I could reconcile what happened um, and how people reacted with you know, what, what had happened previously. And I came to the conclusion that there was this cultural moment that we're at um, where the idea of safety or even the appearance of it um, is kind of an overriding factor. And uh, um, to me, that really explains um, a large portion of, of what happened, how people reacted, not just leaders, but you know, my own neighbors and, and uh, um, people I work with and, and know personally. I've explored this issue of us living in a safetyist society. Actually, in the book, you, you reference uh, Lenora Skenazy, the of Let Grow, and you know, she's been you know, looking at this. She became infamous by you know, letting her, I forget how old the kid was, but go on the subway on their own and wrote about it, dared to write about it, and became a... I mean, I think, I think it highlighted exactly what you're talking about, that we've kind of become this very risk-averse to the point where there's a performativity to it. That is, that is very disturbing because the cost of that, you actually can cause huge damage while just trying to have performative safety. And indeed, I think that's what happened. Yeah, absolutely. When you let your kids go outside and do some activity independently outside of your supervision, not only do you think, are my kids going to be safe? What are the chances something bad's going to happen? But you also think, what are other parents going to think about it? You know, what are the neighbors going to think about it? Um, and uh, I give some examples in the, the, the book about that. Um, one example is my mother-in-law is giving a ride to the kids um, a few years ago. And uh, my daughter, youngest daughter, was two at the time. And she, uh, you know, was absolutely refusing to come inside after coming home and, you know, my, my mother-in-law pulling up in front of the house. And um, she's older and cannot, you know, wrestle a two-year-old into the house. So um, she just left her in the car and came out and left her in there for a while, wasn't hot, and uh, figured, you know, she'll, she'll stew in there a bit and then she'll be willing to come in. And that's exactly what happened. A few days later, I have some neighbors approach me saying, you know, I want you to know your, your mother-in-law did this and, you know, people out there that might want to abduct a child, you know, we just wanted to make sure you knew about this. And, um, you know, the idea that someone's hiding behind a tree when you're going to abduct a child is, is just simply not true. The vast majority of children who are abducted are abducted by someone their uh, relative or someone that the family knows. It's not... Um, very rarely um, some other case than that. Um, but it's not helpful to tell neighbors that because they think they're doing something nice. They think they're helping your child be safe. And um, 
You know, they don't understand the difference between something being likely, probable, or even possible. Um, even something being possible is enough that we have to take safety measures and um, keep an eye on our kids all the time. And this has sort of evolved over the last few decades into something that's just um, unfortunately hurt children. And now to the point where many of these children have grown up and they're adults and they're making decisions about businesses and work and um, you know healthcare and things like that. Um, they've grown up in this world where they think the world is a very, very dangerous place. And, uh, and I think that's, um, for me, um, one thing that um, goes a long way to explaining how people behave during the COVID pandemic. Well, I mean, basically what you're saying is that as long as you assume the worst case scenario, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be on the safe side. Right. But the consequences be damned. Yes. You don't need to think of the consequences. It's a very strange mentality. Sure. I mean, you don't think of the trade-offs, right? I mean, my worry is that, you know, my daughter will, you know, grow up in, entitled and, you know, like trying to control everyone. And um, I think what my mother-in-law did was like the right thing to do in that case. And um, that's a bigger deal than this sort of, um, unfounded fear of being abducted right outside of the, right up front of your house, you know. And uh, <clears throat> but people don't think of it that way. They think um, anyone who even allows the slightest risk to intrude, especially with children, is being incredibly reckless. That uh, there's no no advantage to any risk whatsoever. And uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the idea that you would take a risk with anything implied that there was a reward that was possible. Um, and that sort of thinking is not, it's, it's somehow that's been lost. The effect of this is that, you know, you could, um, let's talk about the virus, right? You argue there's this, I think, to use your words, monomaniacal focus on one possible threat and to the exclusion of other, in many cases, much more real and immediate threats. A, a good example I can think of is, you know, in, in New York they were proposing giving kids like $100 to get vaccinated. And Mayor de Blasio was like, you could have so much candy, you know, could you could buy from this. And, um, you know, here childhood obesity is exploding in the United States. And so that's an actual threat towards children um, and you know, a long-term threat. and. Instead, it was uh, a mechanism for helping them avoid an almost non-existent threat. Um, and I think that there's just a lot of irony there um, that, that goes a long way in describing how people were just unwilling to acknowledge any sort of trade-off. Well, I mean, even worse than that, exposing them to a potential threat that they didn't need to be exposed to. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's stunning. And this is actually one of your chapters, right, in, in, in your book where you, you discuss this question of how is it that we, that we forgot about actually protecting our children. Yeah, you're exactly right. The, um, and and I, I, I like to use the term the appearance of safety because it's not even just safety. It's offering people this idea that they can completely eliminate risks for their children, for themselves, 
um, for anyone that ends up replacing considerations of actual safety. Because, I mean, up until, you know, early 2020, the idea that you would wear a cloth face covering to prevent giving someone else a respiratory in infection or acquiring it yourself was not, there was no evidence to support that. Um, but after things had been shut down for a while, um, there seemed to be a need to give the public something that they could believe was going to make them safer, convince them maybe they could go out if they just you know, wore something over their face. Um, <clears throat> that was enough. That was the, the, the appearance of safety, giving them that control, the illusion of control. And this was before the vaccine. The vaccine provided the exact same um, type of feeling, despite only having um, a small amount of evidence that it was um, effective in, in a short period of time, gave people this sort of you know, illusion of control, thinking that they were, uh, as one person put it, um, a suit of armor came over me when I you know, got my vaccination. I felt like there was this impervial, impermeable barrier protecting me from infection. And, uh, and so that illusion, I think, was really important to people, even if they didn't, didn't realize it. Doctors Jay Bhattacharya and Martin Kolder, you know, we, we both know, uh, had a, a paper that talked about similarities between the response, the COVID response, and the response to HIV back in the day. And so I thought that was very interesting. In your book, you, uh, you, you talk a lot about this, what you describe, you say you jokingly refer to it as the HIV industrial complex, so to speak. And I didn't realize that a third of NIH funding was actually HIV-oriented. That, that is an absolutely fascinating, amazing number. But um, why don't I get you? Why don't, why don't I get you to talk about that? Like, what, what happened with AIDS and then HIV? Yeah, so you're right. There's a lot of um, similarities there with HIV and how it became this sort of funding, funded industry because of development of drugs and things that inhibit progression to AIDS, um, it was a manageable disease, or it is somewhat a man manageable disease at this point, but the, the, the research industrial complex is the best way to refer to it. Continues to, to remain, if you're an immunologist, this is a thing that you've had to live with your whole career. I mean, I have been, um, professor at least for a dozen years and if you're not seeking HIV related funds it's a lot harder to get get fund get your research funded and that's a, a, a point of contention for a lot of us um, having to sort of deal with that despite the fact that you know there are other diseases worldwide like malaria and which have a much greater greater burden on human populations and even in the United States um, <clears throat> than HIV does at this time. There's still, as you said, um, about a third of, uh, to this day, NIH funding for NIAID, which is the um, in infectious and allergic um, uh, allergy immunology um, division of NIH. Um, that's still um, 
something that doesn't seem like it'll ever go away because it was built over a certain amount of time and uh, through a very large lobbying campaign. Um, and some of that was very fascinating if you go back and look at how it was done in a way where, you know, some of that was selling fear to average people, um, despite the fact that vulnerable, the vulnerable population for HIV was very specific, um, very specific population of um, homosexual men that were, um, had, you know, 10 or more partners. Um, and uh, um, despite the fact that it was possible that heterosexuals could get HIV through sexual contact or, um, you know, IV drug use, um, it wasn't the same level of um, risk just wasn't there. But yet you can see that there was this very concerted effort to sort of paint heterosexuals as being very uh, in danger and that this disease would soon spread out, outside of the um, population of what was accepted as very vulnerable people. This sort of fear campaign was um, something, I mean, I remember I was, you know, like 12, 13, just coming and just getting like sex education at school and, and hearing about this and trying to decide, you know, if somebody is just bleeding, am I going to, you know, get exposed to HIV and get it that easily? And um, there was so much misinformation, but then there was a, an attempt to, to capitalize on that, you know, increase power and influence. And, and I think some of that playbook survived um, to, into um, the response to the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. What, what, what were those things that survived? Well, I mean, the idea of including people as vulnerable that weren't actually vulnerable, children being the main example for COVID, um, you know, to this day, the CDC likes to cite, you know, 2,000-something children died from COVID, and that number, no matter how small it might be or whether it represents healthy children or not, or whether it's even accurate, you know, this is not important. It's important to say, you know, that's possible that a child could die. It doesn't matter whether it's likely. We're trying to eliminate risk completely. Um, but anybody can get it and anybody can die from it, which is not really, not really true. Healthy children, for a healthy child, the risk is almost zero. And uh, um, that was completely lost. Um, in media coverage, and uh, it's very interesting parallel to how there was this surge of interest in, in media articles and cases where, um, with HIV, where a guy would, you know, he saw a prostitute 10 years before and, you know, came down with HIV, and, you know, these sort of amplified, rare examples made to look like they were going to be very common, in fact. And so that same playbook was very evident with COVID. So it's very interesting that you say that because one of the things I pulled out here is you, uh, you, I'll quote you, highlight four tried and true strategies that media outlets use to keep their audience engaged and their already minimal potential for disbelief suspended. <laughs> so this is one of the, 
what you, what you just described is one of them, I think. Right, so yeah. share the rare example enough times that it begins to appear as if it's common. Um, that's tried and true. You see that with um, not just HIV and COVID, but in all sorts of, of areas. People are more likely to click on articles that are, that are negative, that have some sort of scare factor. The news outlets, they rely on advertising and clicks, and um, that gets people's attention, so that's what they go with. And so you said one is cherry-pick statistics or present them in the worst context. Number two, amplify the tragic anecdotes of young, healthy people dying to make the audience believe these cases are common. That's the one we just, I think we just discussed. Use scary models and pretend their predictions are not just hypotheses or worst-case scenarios, but the most likely outcomes. Gosh, where, where have we seen that, right? And then number four, include scare quotes from experts because the right expert can provide a veneer of authority in your otherwise subjective bias-confirming piece. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was enormously successful, the, the media tactics. I mean, when you did, somebody did a poll um, that I mentioned in the book, you know, about what Americans thought about their risks. And I can't remember, I think it was late, late in 2020. And, uh, you know, it was like 10% of the people could actually get the hospitalization rate for COVID correct, 10%. That's how misinformed people were. And that information was out there. If you really wanted to find what the hospitalization rate, the mortality rate for COVID was, I mean, you can find that. But not as easily as it should have been. Um, and that's because so much of this fear was being amplified. And they were at home. They were isolated. They were a captive audience. And, um, you know, it was something that the media outlets couldn't, couldn't resist tapping into, unfortunately. So tell me about, you know, these, about mass hysterias. What have you learned about this? Because this is, you know, frankly, this is an area I just didn't really know much about prior to watching what happened in the last few years. It is fascinating. I give some, give some examples in the book of mass hysterias outside of the COVID um, pandemic itself. One was where there was a, a teen soap opera in Portugal where there was a, a pandemic. And this was, you know, years before COVID. And uh, all of these girls in Portugal started coming down with symptoms after this episode aired, you know. And um, turns out that was an emotional contagion. That was a mass hysteria that had spread um, independently of any infectious agent. This is just a soap opera. Right. Yeah, I mean, but that shows how effective it is. Something that's real, something that's tangible, but you don't necessarily have access to tr real information about it is going to be even worse. And there's examples where, um, with other pandemic sort of psychology studies, that um, if you're right next to a hot epicenter of infection and disease, but you're not quite there yet, that's when the fear is the highest. But then actually, when it starts to sweep through your community, you see the actual risks. You can see them with your own eyes. And so as more and more communities got swept through with COVID, they got, people got to actually see, okay, kids really didn't get sick at all. And you know, healthy adults were by and large fine. And uh, yes, people in assisted living facilities, nursing homes, um, definitely had it worse than, than anyone else. But the, the vulnerable population was, 
fairly easy to identify, despite what they had already heard before they had actual real life exposure. You know, psychologically, there's a term for that. It's called the typhoon eye effect. It's like right when you're in the middle of the storm, you're actually calmer, you don't have as much anxiety. But that's because you're dealing with the real, the real effects and not the, not the fear that comes beforehand. Tell me about COVID, COVID stress syndrome. I hadn't heard of this. Yeah, so I mean, that's just a, basically a version of being a germaphobe activated by COVID. Um, that was a psychologist Stephen Taylor wrote about. He wrote a very interesting book called The Psychology of Pandemics, which was very timely and came out right before the COVID pandemic, but also later on wrote articles um, tying that into the, the, the pandemic itself. And, um, you know, somebody who's been prone to OCD, other types of obsessive disorders, could, um, you know, be driven into COVID stress syndrome where they're constantly going to the doctor, constantly thinking they're, they're feeling sy symptoms, constantly thinking they're being exposed to the, the virus, um, you know, being afraid of other people. I mean, there are articles of people who are, were already, you know, germaphobes before, and obviously they went completely off the charts, being isolated, um, feeling like they had to treat others like they were, um, you know, disease vectors, um, something they were already prone to doing. It was devastating for those people. Mm. Tell me about uh, placebo effect, which many people have heard about, but also nocebo, which in some ways is more important here and less people know about. Right. So, um, you know, they both have physiological components. So uh, with a placebo, you're taking something or you're receiving some sort of treatment that isn't actually have an active component, but you're still feeling the benefits. Um, one example I give in the book is uh, Parkinson's disease, where treatment for Parkinson's, the, the placebo treatment actually has beneficial effects because there are releases of hormones and things that are dopamine and, and whatnot that um, mimic some, that give the the person with Parkinson's some, some improvement. And so nocebo affects the opposite of that, where you're feeling negative effects of something despite actually not being exposed to, you know, whatever toxin or virus that you think you've been exposed to. An example I give there is uh, a guy who overdosed on a depression medication um, and thought he was dying until the doctor showed up and told him he was actually taking the placebo. And, uh, but you know, his, his uh, blood pressure had dropped into dangerously low levels and physiologically he was actually having a response to that. But nothing could cure him faster than being told that he wasn't actually taking the... There were a few days where I thought I'd lost my sense of smell. But then I thought to myself, oh, um, that must be because of the suggestibility yeah. of co you know, COVID. And then later I found out, I think that was probably when I actually had COVID. I didn't realize because later I found out I had robust antibodies, you know. But, um, but I, it didn't, yeah, I kind of just went through it without thinking much about it. Well, yeah, long COVID is a good example of this too, um, where people, they're reporting their own symptoms and they're associating them with 
being infected prior to COVID, but um, it's very difficult to ascribe to have a causation there where exactly what they're experiencing is directly related to the infection. The same thing happens with um, vaccine responses, especially something that doesn't happen immediately after getting vaccinated. You don't necessarily know if that's actually caused by the vaccine or not. So, I mean, it's one of the strong indicators of somebody with long COVID um, was um, women who had a history of anxiety and depression. And uh, that suggests that there is a component there that is um, kind of a nocebo effect, um, psychosomatic. And uh, I, I think that's really fascinating. But anytime you have to deal with this sort of self-reported data, um, you have to be, figure out a way to, to get that noise out. And that's extremely difficult for that type of a study, especially something that's very diffusely defined, where there are a lot of possible um, manifestations, like you know, things got kind of out of control with long COVID, where people were saying, you know, some people were losing their teeth and rashes and toe problems, and um, it got kind of kind of crazy how many things were supposedly connected. Right, COVID toe. I hadn't heard of that until I read your book. That's why, I mean, someone made a joke, I think, right, about having COVID toe, and some people took it seriously. Right, that was Aaron Rodgers of Packers quarterback made a joke about it, but it, it was actually a thing. And how relevant it was to COVID is, I still think is, is not quite clear. That's why I said one, one subheading in my book is hearts and minds and from hearts and minds to teeth and toes or something like that. And that's about, you know, myocarditis, brain fog, losing your teeth, getting COVID toes. That's the whole gamut. And it's, it's, it's kind of, got out of hand. So you have a section in here that's uh, the behavioral immune system gone awry. The behavioral immune system. What, what, what's, what are you talking about here? Because I was so fascinated. I'm not a psychologist, but I find it fascinating. Um, and, you know, the idea that you're, we're hardwired to avoid um, infectious disease with our behavior makes a lot of sense, and that's kind of where the behavioral immune system comes in. Um, you know, people can smell when somebody's infected. If, they, if you inject somebody with um, LPS, which is part of a bacterial cell wall, um, then you can take a, a shirt they're wearing and give it to someone else, and they'll rate your, your shirt as not smelling as, as, as attractive as somebody who didn't get the in injection. So, I mean, it's like there are examples of this where, um, you know, things that we find um, disgusting seem to be hardwired, you know, to some extent maybe. If you had a brand new toilet that had never been used and you ask someone to eat food out of it, right? I mean, no one's going to do that, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, that, despite the fact that it has no actual exposure to human waste at all um, and would be perfectly fine, right? But that's just something that we're hardwired to, to not want to do and basically expose ourselves to that or at least even the thought of it. Um, that's the behavioral immune system functioning effectively because in most cases you probably don't want to do that. 
Um, so how has it gone awry? Right. So, I mean, that's, you know, getting into the COVID stress syndrome or, you know, I mean, going from sort of rational ways of avoiding infectious disease to the, the ir irrational way of, of, of avoiding disease. One example given in that book, um, Psychology Pandemics, is uh, during SARS-1, a woman went to the bank and got some cash and tried to microwave it after she came home to sterilize it, you know which doesn't work on money, it actually burns. <laughs> burnt up in flames. So um, <clears throat> that's obviously an, an extreme example, but we saw that you know, over and over again where people were dousing their groceries with bleach, um, when the, even when they were delivered and left on the front porch. There was really no evidence of um, that surface transmission was, was a major route of transmission for COVID. And it was very soon when, when we started to realize that, but people were still doing these type of things. This suggests to me though, you were, you were, talk, were talking about this performative safety, and I, but this sort of behavior suggests something different though. It's not, it's not performative. Like these people are putting bleach on their vegetables, probably potentially hurting themselves. I don't, no one's seeing them put the bleach on, I think. <laughs> There's something else happening here, right? So I mean, you have a sub, that's a subset of people who really are taking it seriously in a way that's counterproductive. Um, these aren't obviously the same people that are doing it for performative reasons, but the whole um, sort of cultural moment I think where we're at has increased both of those populations: people who are taking it seriously to the point of irrational behavior. And people who are, you know, humoring the people taking it seriously by doing these sort of performative appearance of safety type measures. Humoring or, or sh demonstrating that they're part on the team. Right. And yeah, and that's, that's a whole other thing I get into in terms of demonstrating your, your, your fealty to your political team. And, and, and of course, that became a big thing that was associated, you know, with the left was very much into um, this demonstrating the virtue of wearing masks and becoming vaccinated, uh, and uh, less so on people on the the right or those that supported um, President Trump or however you want to you want to label them. It just became this thing where you had to be in one group or another, and. Uh, if you express anything that fit into one of those categories, you're automatically put into that, that box, um, which is another aspect of the cultural time we find ourselves in. You're contending this is all because of our increasingly irrational fear of microbes or risk. When, when COVID actually happened and people started behaving in similar ways, I thought back to another incident where I had gotten in a, a fight with my daughter's daycare after she came down with what's called hand, foot, and mouth disease. A lot of toddlers get it, especially if they're in daycare. There's germs everywhere. <laughs> you can't avoid it. Kids get sick all the time. That's just a part of it. And something like hand, foot, and mouth disease that gets in a, a daycare, it's not getting out until everybody's got it and gotten over it. And it's so contagious and that even daycare workers can spread it and be completely asymptomatic because it's really only affecting symptomatically the very small children. And uh, my daughter got it, had the 
lesions on her, in her mouth, on her hands, and kind of on her body. And you know, the pediatrician's like, OK, after she's had fever has resided for, and stopped for 24 hours, she can go back to daycare. And then the daycare director was like, no, she has to have all of her lesions on her hands and feet and extremities healed completely before she can come back. Like, that would be two weeks. And the reality of it is um, children are contagious well beyond, even after everything is healed, they can secrete the virus in their stool. And so you're going to have always have some kid that's transmitting it there in that daycare. It doesn't matter how long you keep them at home. Um, you're basically wasting people's time and money by keeping them home for two weeks, and you're not actually making anyone safer. But the daycare owner called the health department, and the health department actually agreed with her, which I was really surprised by, and I went and talked to them specifically. And they really wouldn't budge on it, um, despite the fact that you know, there was really no evidence saying that that was actually going to make things safer. So that made me think about first about the idea of the appearance of, of safety, because there, it didn't matter that there were facts that this didn't make anyone safer. It was the action that they were taking. We are just doing this because other people will think it, it looks like we're taking safety seriously. And uh, that really s stuck with me when um, the COVID pandemic hit and people started to act in that very same way. To me, it wasn't a coincidence. Mm. There's regulations that are being written as we speak that suggest that what was done during COVID was the correct course of action and just should be done better next time. Um, now, when I read your book, it's very clear that this decision-making was very flawed in, in the many of the ways that we described. So, you know, what, what do you make of the fact that, that some people believe this was the correct course of action? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, to get people to, to go back on what they were felt so strongly for two or three years, you know, and they're going to want to look out and find some sort of validation for how they behaved. And uh, that's the big challenge. I mean, clearly, my goal was to have an effect on people in my immediate environment, in my neighborhood, and my at the school level. And um, I didn't feel like I had much of an effect at all. But now it's more about the the, the sort of historical record. And uh, you know, the evidence is all there that this was a huge mistake. Um, but it has to be documented, and the story has to be told over and over and over again. And I think that's where we're at, and why it's important for you know, however many books that need to be written about it, get written about it. So do you, you think that, that that's enough? Yeah, I mean, what else can you, can you hope for? I mean, you look at things like school closures, and I mean, it's very stark differences, places that didn't close schools for this, uh, you know, the children did better. They didn't suffer learning losses. They didn't gain a bunch of weight. They didn't have the same level of, you know, suicide ideation and things like that, um, drug abuse, that type of thing. And that's all there. And that, that evidence is there, and it's becoming more clear. Um, the key is just to not let people deny that, because there's going to be a large drive and a large um, segment of the population that's, you know, wants to deny it and wants it to not be true. 
especially if you committed as a parent, for example, to doing something to your kid, which turns out to have hurt them, which frankly happened to millions of parents, probably given the wrong information. Maybe some of them suspected there might be something off, but went, went with it anyway, and now they have to kind of just deal with that as a person, mm-hmm. right? So it must be very difficult. But again, as a parent, you would hope that the person would make the decision to, 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 to make sure they don't you know, do such a thing another time. Right, I mean, and people have to act on the information that they have and the fact that much of it was not, not correct and actually willfully misleading. We really need to shine a light on it and the most visible way possible. You know, another thing you just reminded me, kind of as we're finishing up here, but one of the anecdotes you use, you're looking at some cases of, you know, basically experts being very wrong in the past on the causes of disease and so forth. And in some cases, it's actually like the, you, in, in one case you're describing, it was actually like the priests or something, it was the religious people who were bringing the, the, the scientifically valid viewpoint and the experts didn't. Yeah, so the example you talk about is, is about smallpox variolation. Um, and that was, I mean, I love to use the historical examples in the first part of the book to sort of lead into the second part of the book to show that, yes, a lot of this stuff has kind of happened before in terms of experts being wrong, somebody trying to point it out and getting attacked. Um, but then also in the second part showing why we do have kind of a unique moment here, why we were susceptible to certain types of behaviors and a certain type of response, which we, which we got. <clears throat> but the one example was, was uh, smallpox and variolation was there before vaccination where you were just exposing people to a small amount of actual smallpox from other people's lesions, trying to scratch it on their, the back of their hand or their um, arm. And uh, obviously there was a risk of people getting full-blown smallpox, but it reduced the risk of getting full-blown smallpox from some other means of transmission. Um, But the example I gave is in the, it was Boston, um, 1721, I think it was. The physicians were the ones that were opposed to it um, in the city. And remember, uh, medicine at the time consisted of doing some crazy things like bleeding people to make them um, lose their bad humors, you know, that were in their blood and sort of purify them. And uh, that concept of infectious disease wasn't really understood. It was thought of to be miasma, just like bad air, you know, Um, and uh, noxious fumes and things like that. And so that's what the experts were believing. And here was, you know, um, a, a minister who had been convinced um, by a slave who had been variolated back when he was in Africa, that this is something that, you know, that worked. And so him and another doctor began to sort of propose, propose that this be done widespread to avoid the um, ravages of a smallpox outbreak. And of course, they were attacked by, you know, the experts. Another good example I give is um, John Snow, who, um, uh, in, in terms of cholera outbreaks, identified water of the Broad Street pump as being the source of, of the cholera outbreak in London. And you know he was attacked um, 
by all the experts at that point too, because they were still believing. You know, this is 150 years later after the smallpox story, still believing the miasma theory, and he was proven right several years later. So I think those are those are really interesting examples where the experts were on the wrong side of of, of reality. Yeah, but we sort of you know we we kind of believe that we're somehow immune from that. I mean that, that I think that that this is one of the things you chart very well. We sort of imagine that the experts should have all this figured out. But, and, and, and it will actually, and they kind of do, because there's a lot of experts like yourself, right, that just didn't, didn't weren't really able, where I, I think you describe it as you were shouting in the wilderness, or I forget, I forget how, how exactly you described it, but basically there was this huge deluge of information in one direction, and you felt hopeless to, to offer your perspective. Yeah, and I wouldn't even call myself a, an expert. I think it, that's one of those terms that's kind of lost a lot of of its its meaning and a lot of its uh, the power behind it. Um, and that's because you know it's been shown that if you experts try to predict things, they're not very good at it. Um, they're actually terrible at it. They're not better than any average person in terms of prediction. Sometimes their knowledge can be. Uh, a hindrance to understanding something new um, that that might have some different properties. The first SARS virus, people thought the second one's going to be exactly like it. Turns out that wasn't wasn't true at all. So um, having too much knowledge about that actually made predictions much less likely to 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 happen. So I think the term expert has really lost a lot of its its meaning. It's kind of like anti-vaxxer. You know, there's. What is an anti-vaxxer? You know, nowadays it's somebody who just thinks maybe vaccine safety should be a priority. You know, so um, I'm I'm an immunologist. I'm certainly not an anti-vaxxer, but there are lots of people who, um, even if you question uh, safety, the fact that maybe the process has been subverted in some way um, makes you an anti-vaxxer. So, right. or if you're you're asking for good, you know. Better safety studies that makes you an anti vaxxer sure. or something like that. Right. right, absolutely. Amazing conversation, Steve. Any final thoughts as we finish? Yeah, um, I, I hope people read my book. Um, and, and I think that um, it's important to have as many books about this type of topic as possible. I think the marriage of the safety culture and the, 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 the microbial understanding of the microbial world that we live in, I think, is a a unique um, way of looking at things that I think will resonate with a lot of people. I tried to write the book in a way that was accessible to uh, a wide audience. So um, I hope many people find it and, and enjoy it. Well, Steve Templeton, it's such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you all for joining Steve Templeton and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm -hmm.